Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but Are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. This week, we're joined by Jose Miguel Cruz, Director of Research at Florida International University's Kimberly Green Latin America and the Caribbean Center. Jose Miguel has a unique background. He is an expert in gangs, criminal violence, policing, democratization, and public opinion in Latin America. He holds a PhD in political science from Vanderbilt University, and more recently, Jose Miguel was the principal researcher of two new studies on gang disengagement in Guatemala and Honduras. He joins us this week to discuss the key takeaways of these studies and how they can be used to better understand the policies needed to decrease gang membership in the long term. Jose Miguel, thanks so much for making time to chat with us about the results of your work. Absolutely. Thank you, Margarita and 35 West for an invitation to be here. First, let's get a bit of context. Could you please tell me how this research came about? This is part of, a, of an effort we here at LAG, FIU, have been doing to understand gangs in, in Central America. We have the luck to partner with uh, American Institutes of Research and, and Democracy International with support of USAID to continue this research focused on Honduras and Guatemala. And basically what we wanted to know is whether gang members in these Central American gangs like MS-13 or 18 Street Gang, we wanted to know whether members of these gangs can exit those organizations, right? Uh, because that's a key point to implement programs to deal with, with violence in Central America. So turning to the context of the studies, I want to start with the reasons why youth join gangs like MS-13 and 18th Street in the first place. As with many other things, there are several reasons, right? Youth join gangs in large part because this is a moment in which they want to be part of something bigger, right? Remember, most of these gangs in Central America are comprised of young kids from, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And, and at that stage of life, they want to be part of, of something. The, the issue is that that something usually is a gang in their barrio, in their neighborhood. So they see the gang, they see these, these groups as an opportunity to be part of an important group, at least from their point of view, right? Is that what is known as pull forces? Yeah, uh, pull forces, because the gangs exert this kind of attraction to kids, right? And these kids are especially sensitive to those kind of groups at that age. Remember, this is an age in which you, I, when we went young, right, when we were teenagers, we want to be part of a group, of an important group. The problem is that these are the only groups sometimes available in these communities. 
What exactly are these psychosocial pull forces that gangs use in getting youth to join a gang? These pull forces are, they need to be part of something, right? As I said, during these years, kids are looking to define their own identity and, and gaining autonomy, right? And, and getting some kind of autonomy from their families, from their parents. Gangs allow them to have that identity. So when kids see these groups of older kids hanging out together, doing different things, sometimes even illicit, illegal things, but they are viewed as cool and having fun together from their point of view, they want to be part of that, right? These are potential friends. They, they want to be part of that. The problem is that those groups are sometimes criminal groups, right? And uh, joining them involves getting into sort of illicit, illegal behavior that becomes problematic, not only for them, but obviously for, all, for the community. Now, the results of the two studies indicate that, as probably predicted, gangs in both countries are primarily an urban male phenomenon, though female members are accepted into the ranks. Considering the findings of the studies, how do the experiences of female and male members of the gangs differ? They differ significantly in some extent, right? For instance, males join gangs because they want to earn respect from the community, right? Sometimes they join the gangs because the gang also provides resources, right? Money, uh, access to drugs, access to certain things, right? That prevails in the kind of males and young males. In the case of females, the main drivers tend to be they want to be with their peers, with other girls sometimes, other, or other boys. Uh, sometimes they join the gangs just because they are following a romantic partner, right? Somebody who they are in love with. So they join the gang, not in the same sense that males do because they want to be with their peers, but because females sometimes they are in love with somebody who is in the gang and they want to be part of the gang. The problem with that is that in those cases, in the case of females, that puts them in sort of subordinate roles sometimes. And in those cases in which some females join the gangs expecting that they were treated equally with males, that rarely happens, right? And they usually are, are treated worse than other peers or worse than, than in their own families or in the community. There are really sad stories about that when it comes to females joining the gangs. Lots of work to be done there. Your study in Honduras mentions that the structures of the more notorious gangs have mutated over the past two decades. Could you tell me, please, a little bit about what has evolved and how these structures operate today? What we found is that in the last 20, 25 years, things have changed for gangs in Central America. 25 years ago, for instance, uh, or even three decades ago, if you join a gang in Central America, in places like Honduras, in Tegucigalpa, in San Pedro, you will join a gang or, or a group that basically would have looked like, you know, gangs in other places in the world. The street groups, 
a group of kids just hanging out together, sometimes doing some, some illicit things, petty crime, things like that. That was two, three decades ago. But as things have worsened in Central America, economic conditions, also policies dealing with these kids and the chronic lack of opportunities, what has happened is that these groups, the original were, you know, street corner groups have evolved to become, to generate some structure, some organizational structures, especially because many of them ended in prison. And in prison, they have not only the time to reorganize, but also the contact with other experienced criminals who taught them how to go about criminal, you know, activities, right? Unfortunately, this helped these groups to develop, you know, structures and organizations with uh, specialization roles, and they diversify in criminal activities, right? So, for instance, in Honduras, we found that the MS-13 organization, for instance, has specific roles for each gang member. Some gang members will operate as what they call soldiers, uh, and they are in charge of day-to-day operations, criminal operations. Some others called ranfleros are in charge of exclusively dealing with drugs. And others called gatilleros, for instance, are the assassins, are they in charge of enforcing the rules and the gang. So they have specialized roles within the gang to maintain the daily operations of the gang. And this is, this has evolved in the last 10, 15 years to this state that I'm describing. Now that we've covered gang involvement, I want to turn to the other end of the issue, please. Gang disengagement. Do many gang members want to leave the gang and how do they do it? So this is one of the, I think, uh, most important findings of of research in Central America, right, in, in places like Honduras, Guatemala, and previously in, in El Salvador. Because if you go to Central America, there seems to be this notion that once you are in the gang, you never leave the gang. That's the, the prevailing notion. What we found with our study is that that's not true, actually, that, uh, that many, many gang members, actually most of gang members, they reach a point in which most of them, they want to leave the gang. They, they want to exit the gang. They want to stop criminal activities and somehow rehabilitate and reinsert into society, right? Become good citizens. The problem is that in many cases, they don't find the right opportunities or they are not given the opportunities or even if they try, Sometimes they are pulled back by the gang itself or the community rejects them. So that makes sometimes the process of disengagement very difficult. But the good news is that most of them want to leave the gang, right? And, and they want to leave the gang, and I'll finish with this. Uh, they want to leave the gang just because they have matured, they have evolved, they get to a place or they get to an age in which they realize that many of the things that they value when they were younger no longer exist, right? And they just want to be part of the society and want to be productive agents in the society. 
Another key finding in your study is that in Honduras or El Salvador, gang members can leave the gang. They can leave behind criminal activities and actually rehabilitate. But this process is much more difficult in Guatemala, for example. What do you think accounts for this difference? I think that in Guatemala is more difficult because given the, the sort of structural organization of gangs in Guatemala, in which every clique, uh, the, the gang is divided of different neighborhood cliques, right? Neighborhood groups. So in, in Guatemala, these cliques have a lot of power on their own members. And the cliques, they don't want them to leave the gang because they see that these potential deserter they become a threat to pass information to other cliques or to other gangs or to other organizations. So they maintain a very strict, rigid structure that doesn't allow them to leave the gang. That doesn't happen in places like Honduras and El Salvador, because in those places, the gang being more extended, being more diverse, let's say, allows for different ways of exiting the organization, right? So at the end, in places like Honduras, for instance, a gang member who wants to leave the gang can negotiate his or her exit from the gang. He or she can become a member of a religious organization and the gang will respect that. In Guatemala, they don't do that. They don't respect that because they see anybody who, who will leave the gang as a potential threat to the survival of the gang. And what conditions, per se, facilitate that successful exit? Well, there are several conditions, but I think one of the most important ones is the availability of opportunities for those who want to leave the gang. One of the problems we found in our study is that, as I mentioned, many of them want to leave the gang, right? They get to a point in which they don't want to continue the criminal life, they don't want to continue committing crimes, they don't like being in, in, in the gang, and they just want, you know, to work, they just want to have the opportunity to be with their family, to form a family, to raise their kids, right? But first, many of them, because they joined the gangs being so young, they abandon school so they don't have skills. Many of them, they don't have employment skills, right? Something that will help them to work, right? So they lack those things first. Second, even if they manage to get some kind of skills and get some education, they will not receive opportunities for jobs. Many organizations, many employers just won't employ former gang members. So they, they have to face this very sometimes hostile environment in which they really want to change. They really want to insert in, 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 in a productive life, but they don't have opportunities, right? They lack those opportunities. And, and the only, the only prospect sometimes is go back to the gang, right? Which is terrible and it's sad because you don't, you want them to have these opportunities and to move on from, from the gang. Do civil society organizations play a particular role here or the private sector, church? Yes, all of them. It depends on the place. In some places, churches play 
a key role providing those opportunities in some other places, civil society organizations, NGOs with some programs, right? What is interesting, and we found that, is that most of the opportunities that are available to these kids are coming not from state institutions, not from state organizations, but are coming from civil society organizations, sometimes from some businesses, right, who open their doors and train some of these kids, and especially they are coming from churches. Faith-based organizations are very active trying to provide former gang members opportunities. What I think we need is to span that pool of organizations that provide those opportunities, especially within the public sector, right? Within the, the state, within the state institutions that provide those opportunities to kids. The process of leaving a gang does not end with the actual act of disengaging. What are the most common challenges faced by former gang members reintegrating into society? Sort of the most frequent one is lack of opportunities. I repeat this because it's so important. Many of them want to leave the gang, want to exit criminal life, but they just don't find opportunities to do so, right? Like having a job, having a quality education, right? Having a program that will allow them to be trained, right? So that plays an important role. That lack of opportunities is a huge challenge for former gang members, but also insecurity. Remember, Central America, especially in the Northern Triangle, places like Honduras and Guatemala are countries with high levels of insecurity, high levels of, of violence, and that violence affects them too. So I have several stories of former gang members who decided to leave the gang, who decided to start a new life, but fate had them, you know, run into former enemies or even former friends who now consider him or her as a traitor just for leaving the gang, right? And in those cases, they are targeted by the former peers or by the former rivals. So insecurity becomes a, a huge challenge for them because they have to navigate those environments of insecurity too. And also another challenge is discrimination. They are discriminated because of their past. And many of them still basically bear the signs of former gang membership, like tattoos or the way they behave, but especially tattoos, right? And in those cases, a, a gang member who, you know, when he was 14, 15 year old, decided to tattoo all his face or his arms or his body, then five, seven years later, he's out of the gang. He decides to get rid of any criminal activity. He goes looking for a job, looking for an opportunity, education, educational opportunity. And he shows up in one of these places and people see his tattoos or his signal signs of previous membership. And they stop right there and they said, look, um, we, we don't, we don't hire people with past membership in gangs, right? So that becomes a, a sort of a revolving door sometimes because they don't find opportunities due to discrimination. Could we please shift gears a little bit to policy recommendations? Based on the findings of these two studies, 
What priorities should the Northern Triangle countries refocus on to decrease gang involvement? And what role can the U.S. play in these efforts? The priority should be preventing kids from joining the gangs. That's an important first step. Make uh, all, everything possible to avoid that, you know, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old join a gang. Because preventing them from joining a gang will prevent, first, you know, a lot of criminal activities. And also, you know, as some of, some of them say, right, once they join the gang, sometimes they see, see themselves as having just three choices. Encierro, destierro, y entierro. So it's the choices. Once they join the gang, sometimes it's just, you know, being killed, end up in prison, or being banished. So preventing from joining the gang, is, I think, is, is, should be a priority. And this can be accomplished by providing opportunities for these kids to have alternative groups. I mean, remember, these are kids who joined the gang because at, when they were 12, 13-year-olds, they thought that the gang was the only group that would accept them, that in which they will receive some kind of respect. We should create environments in which they will find positive role models in other, in other kind of groups. And that could be done in the community, that could be done in, in schools especially, creating these alternative groups that will provide positive role models to these kids. So, that's one thing that we can prioritize. But also, we shouldn't, and actually this is part of our effort here, we shouldn't forget those who already joined the gangs and have left the gang, right? For them, we have to create opportunities. We have to create environments in which they will be able to be trained, to gain some skills that will help them to get good jobs, and then find opportunities to work. Because many of them, many of these kids uh, or many of these young men are really bright. They are very productive once they find something that they like. So we need to provide those opportunities. Jose Miguel, is there something else that you want to share with us that perhaps we didn't think of, of asking you? Well, I, I think it's important to view this as a very complex problem that needs multifaceted responses, right, and comprehensive responses. There is no one single silver bullet that will solve the problem of gangs in Central America, but there are many different things that have to be done in many different efforts that should be done in order to have success in this, especially it's not only working with gang members, not only working with the kids, but also working with the communities that deal with the youth, right? We need to train those communities also to be able to create those environments uh, that will provide opportunities to our youth in Central America. Jose Miguel, thank you so much for joining me today. Our gratitude to Florida International University and especially to Democracy International for bringing to our attention these two studies. I sincerely appreciate your time. Thank you, Margarita, and thank you, 35 West, for the opportunity. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>